1: The practice of war gaming is as old as the practice of war itself. Ever since the first person selected that perfect stick to imitate a sword or a spear, the line between the horrors of war and the mimicking of combat for our own entertainment have been pretty blurry. Chess, for example, was based on the old divisions of the ancient Indian military during the Gupta Empire, and during the Cold War, strategists would game Armageddon to see how to avoid a nuclear war. Today, of course, war games are some of the most popular on the market, from Call of Duty to Age of Empires and Risk. But what makes the perfect war game, and what kind of research and calculations go into making them? I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and to find out, I welcomed Martin Anwood onto the podcast. Martin is the game director at Paradox Interactive, which produces Victoria 3, a new grand strategy game that provides a simulation of 100 years starting all the way back in 1836. In the game, you can choose any nation and guide it through a tumultuous and transformative century. And so it's from Martin's vast experience that we hear what makes a truly captivating war game. Enjoy. Hi Martin, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Hey James, I'm actually doing great. It's a lovely day outside. Oh, that's good to hear. Where are you in the world? I am based a bit south of Stockholm, out in the countryside of Nynäshamn. I'm based in Denmark. So between the two of us, actually, it seems quite relevant to be talking about warfare because there's quite a bit of a a history of war between Sweden and Denmark, isn't there? Oh, for sure. Absolutely.
2: I mean, we haven't been to war for a few hundred years because I think they sort of gave up on defeating Sweden. But before that, there was a lot of wars, a lot of back and forth. We were in a personal union under them for Sometimes. So there's, to be sure, some history of blood there,
1: although nothing recent. (laughs) Nothing recent, although I work at the Centre for War Studies in Denmark, and um, my boss always jokes that uh, the reason why it was established was to keep a watchful eye on Sweden. So it's not all forgotten quite yet. No, they still have a law, technically, on the books that you're allowed to beat
2: to death any Swede that crosses the ice to Denmark during winter.
1: Oh, wow. Well, there you go. A a nice progressive law to keep the union (laughs) between the Scandinavian countries together. And one thing the Danes always complain about, of course, is that um, I think Denmark lost something like seven wars on the trot. And so the reason why Copenhagen is on the coast is because it was originally in the centre of the country, but Sweden took vast swathes of land. And so all that's left of Denmark, this once great kingdom, of course, part of which was Danelaw in Britain as well. But all that's left is this slither of land in between Britain on one side, Norway to the north, Germany to the south, and then penned in by Sweden on the east.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is what happens when you just sort of keep losing and losing worse, I'll just say. But we do kind of joke that if they ever come for Scania, the largest part that you know we took from them, we're happy to give it back. But probably not really.
1: <laughs> probably not really. Although, I mean, Sweden did fire a, a rocket into Norway the other day, so maybe this is the rumblings of a new offensive, Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this actually links us quite well into what we're talking about today. It's a first for the Warfare Podcast. A look at the history of conflict and diplomacy and economics and war through the medium of a computer game. Now, this is Victoria 3, a new grand strategy game from your company, Paradox Interactive. So tell us a little about Victoria 3, Martin. Was it this warring history of Denmark and Sweden that inspired you to create this game? Well, I would say not quite. We do have another game uh, that's more about
2: uh, the fighting between Sweden and Denmark because Victoria 3 actually takes place in the 19th century. Specifically, it goes between 1836 and 1936, so like the 19th and early 20th centuries, during which there were no wars between Sweden and Denmark.
1: Well, I mean, if we're talking about that 100-year period and we're talking about the history of warfare, then I guess there's no other period in modern history that you could focus on. It is the warring period, the period of total war. So tell us, what are you trying to do with this game? What is it that we get from this game in terms of teaching us about the history of war itself? So
2: Victoria as a game and as a game series is very focused on economics and politics, like internal mechanics of your country. It's actually a bit more like of an offshoot in that sense, because a lot of our other grand strategy games focus a lot specifically on war and tactical warfare and so on. But the Victoria series is a lot more focused on what's going on in your country. And that means that the approach that we take to the war in Victoria 3 and sort of Victoria series in general is that the most important thing is not necessarily sort of the fighting and winning in itself, or like brilliant tactical maneuvering, but actually the impact that, that war has, like the reasons that war is waged, the impact it has on your country, on other countries, the way it shapes the development of the world economy, the way it affects people, and just in general, how war ties into everything in a way that I would say a lot of games kind of don't do because war tends to be its own sort of
1: separate mechanic and a little bit isolated from everything else. And isn't the truth of the matter, I guess, that we just completely neglect the drivers of war to focus on the practice of war itself? It's very rare that you'll have a game that allows you to make every single decision down to the minute details of domestic policy, trying to make sure you keep different political parties or religious groups at bay as you set national security policies and. You uh, try and create diplomatic ties between different nations and create trading blocks. But all of this can go wrong. And it's at these points, these cleavages in international politics, these ruptures, that war starts to begin. And this goes down to everything to do with, like you say, the economics, but also logistics and the supply of military. It really is Uh, all-encompassing game. Do you think that's important for a player to be able to control so that they can try and avoid war, but also perhaps understand a little bit about kind of what's going on in international politics in the world today? Because when we think about the current conflicts that are erupting around the world, and we could, of course, think about Russia's offensive war in Ukraine, One of the main drivers there that we can see at the moment, or one of the main legacies, I guess, of the war, is that you're starting to see major shortages of grain being transported to those countries that have relied on Russian and Ukrainian grain for decades now. So do you think that by playing this game, we can learn more about the realities of war itself, or at least the drivers of war? I would
2: absolutely say so. And I think this is where what we talked about with the reason for Victoria and the reason for the selection of this time period really comes in. Is that 1836 to 1936 was a time, of course, you had a First World War, you had total war, you had some extremely bloody conflicts, but you also had a kind of peace in Europe for a very long time. And you had a sort of international system of a lot of great powers going in and meddling in the smallest conflicts, getting involved and in at least sort of on the surface of it, appearing to be sort of agitating for a less conflict-filled world. While, of course, they were in reality mostly just representing their own interests, their own national economic interests, perhaps trying to keep face and so on. And this is what we're really focused on, is the drivers of war in Victoria are usually either economic, you need access to a certain resource, for instance, you do not have access to coal, so you can, of course, trade for it. You can try to secure access by bringing a country that has coal into your market and so on. But ultimately, if you really want to be sure of having a reliable supply of coal, without which your factors will grind to a standstill, then what is the surest way? It is to own a bunch of territory that contains coal. And this is actually something we've seen a lot with our players is, we have a game where we try to discourage going to war by making it very expensive, by making it sort of possible to get things sort of diplomatically by threatening and cajoling and getting people on your side. Uh, but also where, of course, you can still gain significant benefits by going to war. And so all the players go into the game, they see how expensive war is. They're a little like, okay, well, I'm just going to focus on building up my economy. But eventually they will find themselves sort of recreating history by becoming imperialist, even if they went into the game with sort of the goal of, I'm gonna play a sort of peaceful empire-ish gameplay where I'm gonna be more about trading and making friends and so on. Maybe even just building up my own market and ignoring the rest of the world. And then they just find themselves like colonizing Africa, declaring wars on their neighbors and so on, because they just need these resources. And it's completely unreasonable to them that their neighbors are just sitting and not properly developing and trading these resources with them. And then a sort of
1: self-realization of kind of, oh, am I the it? And this is one of the stark realities of international politics, isn't it? I mean, when we study this, when we apply these theories in policy, we think about this as a key security dilemma. You can't trust another nation state, or at least this is what realism in international politics and international relations theory says. It states that you would be a foolish nation if you were to trust another nation state, because there is no grand overarching global police that will keep another nation state in line if it breaks out of its borders and starts to attack you or if it takes all of the resources and there's no one there to protect you if you run out of resources and so it is a clever state or so the theory says who power maximizes gains as much power as possible because it's only you who can protect yourself in the international system
2: yeah it's the nations do not have friends only interests which is definitely a sort of leading theme we take in this game
1: Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War. Visit Chief Poeton as he prepares for war with English colonists. Tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Did you build this game off understandings of international relations theory? And, or was it more to do with the history of war that went into your research? What was it that you did research? I mean, we researched a lot
2: of different things. I wouldn't say we built the game according to any one specific theory. And I definitely wouldn't say that the main sort of driver behind this war was necessarily the history of war, but more of the history of the era and the dynamics of the era. And also just the sort of core focus that I talked about where the game is highly focused on modeling your population. We have a concept called POPs which is like how we simulate the individual population down to the actual, to the best of our research, number of historical individuals in the game. Now, of course, we're not simulating one billion individuals individually, but we're sort of grouping them into culture and religion and workforce and political alignment and so on. And everything in the game is supposed to arise from the people living in the world and sort of come back to the people living in the world. So, for instance, your political systems will tend to be shaped, in a way, by your economics. Who has the wealth? How are they using it? And so on. And this may, in turn, then end up shaping warfare. Because if you're an industrialized nation, if you have a certain army model, and if you have certain interest groups in power, conflicts and why you want to do them and how they're going to shape is going to look a lot different than if you're playing as a feudal country that's still using
1: peasant armies and which barely has any factories built. I see. So you really do get to go into every aspect of the detail as you go through the game. And I've played the game, and I've really enjoyed it. I think it's going to take me many more hours to master it, that's for sure. But it takes me back to being a, a teenager. I used to be obsessed with these sort of games. I used to play Age of Empires and Cossacks, but this is a whole new level with Victoria 3. And I've worked on a couple of games being a historical advisor in the past, And I'm wondering, how do you set up your historical research teams? Do you have two or three researchers in-house, or do you bring people in? Do you send them off to research a specific battle, or what happened during the Treaty of Versailles to find out how a peace agreement comes about and how wars end, or some major trade agreements over that 100 years that you span? How is it that you get this detail so accurately into the game? I would say that we basically use
2: a sort of needs-based system. Our core research team is, consists of our actual designers. We have something called like narrative and content designers who write events. They set up these sort of historical databases. You know, they make sure that, for instance, Lincoln can appear during the struggle to abolish slavery and the American Civil War to the extent that it exists in the game. But they also do a lot of this sort of nitty gritty research, which is a huge accommodation of like, sometimes you just use Wikipedia if you only need a surface understanding, or we have a pile of books. Uh, just as an example, one of the scientists has a whole book on just the Texan Navy. We sometimes hire in consultants for specific tasks. Uh, one example is that we hired in a consultant to do a broad overview of the economies and major industries, major mines, etc. for the entire world, which was quite a significant project to assist us in setting up the initial history database. And then sometimes you have to compromise, because the history research that we have says that there should be these five iron mines. But because, you know, the way we have built the game and so on, we can only support two, or actually we need seven. And then we'll just have to sort of tweak history a little bit, because ultimately, Although our economic model in the game is super complex, I would say probably the most complex of any strategy game. Although, of course, I can't, you know, that is a little bit of a boast, but we'll have to see (laughs) if someone comes out and presents a challenger. It ultimately is just, of course, nowhere near the complexity of real economics, which has so many more chaos factors to it, that in the end, it is often, you know, difficult to map history to the game one to one.
1: And let's be honest, if you do have these limitations on mines and on resources, it's those sort of things that create those sparks for conflict in the game and allow you to manage those situations to either escalate or de-escalate. And that's your choice. Yeah, no, precisely. Just to give an
2: example, one of the major conflicts at the beginning of the game, as it was historically, tends to be the Opium Wars, because in the beginning of the game, Britain is importing a lot of tea and exporting a lot of opium to China, and China has a lot of content around this, which is basically to try and cut off the flow of opium, which usually results in the Britain invading China and forcing them to open up their market to the opium. And this is a sort of driver of war, which isn't about to know, but nothing about conquer China. And they didn't want to conquer China historically, but they wanted to make sure that they didn't have a giant trade deficit, because the only thing they
1: exported that China wanted, more or less, was opium. Yes, of course. And that's actually one of the key features of the game itself, one that I was fascinated with is this supply chain logistics approach. It's got to be one of the most important facts of the game, not only when it comes down to war, but also when it comes down to that contestation between nation states. It shows that it is supply and demand, export and import, and the deficits in those that can create those major disagreements. And it is fascinating how you create these stepping stones across history that show these major points of contestation over this warring period. No, absolutely. I mean,
2: overall, our approach to war is very sort of logistical economics. We don't actually have a system for telling your generals precisely where to go. You, as the sort of player, you can't sit and try to micromanage your armies in such a way that you're just being Napoleon and brilliantly outmaneuvering everyone. But rather, the way you win wars is by setting up the sort of diplomatic and economic preconditions to win by having more friends or at least winning countries over by like, offering them things to support you in conflicts, And uh, if war actually breaks out, it's going to come down a lot to who has the more modern army with the more modern equipment. Of course, who has the larger army who can afford to keep a significant part of their army mobilized and in the field for a long time? And can you protect those supply lines? Because, of course, you can send 1,000 battalions to go fight overseas, but if you don't have enough of a navy to support them, they're going to starve. And if the enemy starts see, like raiding your supply lines and sinking your convoys, then they might also starve. And they might even just defeat you by, for example, cutting off your access to food imports, cutting off your access to coal imports, and the other ways waging economic warfare on you, or making countries embargo you in such
1: a way that your economy just collapses and you have to sue for peace, even though you're winning militarily. Oh, absolutely. If you're interested in the battlefield tactics and the first person view of war, then this isn't the focus of this game. Instead, it's something much grander. This is grand strategy most literally. We talk about grand strategies of nation states all of the time. How is it and why is it that a certain world leader made this decision? We can talk about Churchill's darkest hour and some of the decisions that were made there that changed the entire course of history. And that's exactly the power you have in your hands with this game. And one thing that fascinated me and made me laugh a bit as I was reading some of the reviews for the game, Martin, is that uh, one person, and sorry to read your reviews back to you... (laughs) (laughs) Brace yourself. One person stated that as they were doing the warring campaigns, they had everything set up for guaranteed victory. But all of these small wars started to crop up that were out of their control. And I just thought, well, that is the reality. Let's think about this for a second, especially if we're talking about this particular period. You know, we can talk about the First World War or go through to the interwar period, and you can have the best efforts that you want at peace in our time. I mean, there was a period with the Kellogg-Briand Pact, where war itself was outlawed off the face of the earth. War was illegal. But did that stop war? No. No. There were small wars, civil wars cropping up. And as we move to the end of the period, we get to the Spanish Civil War, that roaring, mechanized conflict that leads us into the Second World War. And it's these sorts of realities that I think you touch on so well. Now, what do you think that people should take from this game, Martin? Is there a lesson about the history of war that is repeated time and time again through the gameplay? Does it actually help us, do you think, to understand the world that we live in and perhaps where we've come from? I would say that there's even two lessons I can say that I would at least
2: like the game to be telling the players. The first we touched on earlier, and that is more or less that every war has a cause, right? Wars don't just break out because someone wants a conflict. There is underlying reasons for them. And yes, those reasons can be at the very least heavily influenced by personalities and rivalries and you know, the further back you go in history, how much power is accumulated in single individuals. But ultimately, wars... Do happen for a reason they are fought for a reason and more often than not that reason comes more from the conditions inside the belligerents than it comes from any amount of sort of border conflicts personality clashes and so on which tends to be more exaggerating factors of these existing underlying conditions and very much related to that the second lesson i would really like to take people to take away from this is that everything is connected War doesn't happen in isolation. War isn't like happening at the side of society. War is happening in society. War touches every single part of a country and every part of a country and a society a people, their economy, their politics touches war in return. And this is really what we try to do with Victoria 3. It is have a game that is as interconnected as possible and as grounded as possible in the sort of people, the society, the economic conditions, all of these factors that are ultimately stemming from the interior of a
1: country rather than from the outside. Well, Martin, I think that's two amazing reasons why people should play this game. Tell us, Martin, where can people get hold of Victoria 3? I would say the absolutely easiest way is simply to go on Steam and search for Victoria 3.
2: And we even have a uh, New Immersion Pack coming out soon, which is folk called Voice of the People, and which focus on historical agitators like Karl Marx, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, and so on, traveling between countries and spreading their ideologies.
1: Well, I hope people do go and download the game. You can choose any nation. You can guide it through that tumultuous and transformative century. You can play out and experience and immerse yourself in all the histories that we cover here, basically, on the Warfare podcast. Martin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.